Hello and welcome to the Stank Cast, where we talk about every single note in Huba Stank's. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, this is I don't get it. The pop culture get off my lawn cast. This is the podcast where two guys in their early forties look at the latest trends in entertainment and quite possibly declare, "What in God's name is wrong with the world these days?" Or perhaps, if they're lucky, they'll say, "Wow, there's some hope for Huba Stank after all." I'm your co-host. Bill Scurry. You, you realize half the people in the world don't remember what Hoobastank is. They know is who Hoobastank is. I barely do. Look, I'm uh, Bill Scurry of American Caesar Enterprises. This is my co-host Noah Tarno of the Big Quiz Thing. How are you, Noah? I am well, Mr. Bill. How you doing? I'm all right. I'm good. I'm raring to talk about EDM, uh, my friend. Yes. Today's topic: electronic dancing music. Dancing AKA, music. Yes. Wait, is it electric or electronic? I actually electronic. Know. Electronic. Yeah. Yeah. The hot musical genre. We are looking at the entire genre. We are not drilling down into one artist or one subgenre. We are taking an overarching view. And if this episode is as big a hit as we know it will be, maybe then we'll <laughs> we'll drill down to bro step or dubstep or <laughs> some other step or something like that. Why don't you give us the Cliff's Notes version? Of EDM, what it's all about. EDM is a broad range of, I'm reading off of Wikipedia here, is a broad range of percussive electronic music genres made largely for nightclubs, raves, and festivals. EDM is produced for DJs who create seamless mixes by segging from one recording to another. In the late 80s and early 90s, following the emergence of rave pirate radio, and an upsurge of interest in club culture, which um, if you guys ever watch 24-Hour Party People, the Michael Winterbottom movie about Tony Wilson, it's actually a really good movie, and it's totally about that. It's really worth it. EDM required a, uh, a mainstream popularity in Europe, and uh, during the mid to late 90s, despite the initial success of some dance acts in America and pop music, acceptance of dance was not universal, and mainstream media outlets remained hostile to dance. Um, it was at this time a perceived association between EDM and a drug culture led many Many Western mm. governments at state and city levels to enact laws and policies intended to halt the spread of rave culture. So with that as a prelude, Noah Tarno, tell me a little bit about what you think of EDM. I hate it. Uh, <laughs> I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. But as with all things I hate, or even most things I like, there's a lot of asterisks involved. Even more so this last week preparing for this episode as I listened to some more EDM music than I had ever purposely listened to before in my life, I moderated my views somewhat. So I, I'm a big music fan. My first job out of school, I was intending to be a music writer. I've since come to realize that my tastes are pretty narrow. I like rock and roll. I'm a, I'm a rockist. I like classic rock. I like guitars and drums. You know, I was never going to like this. And I will give it some credit. Even though I hate it, I'm not going to say it's shit. EDM, in many ways, if I'm going to be charitable, EDM to me is like classical music or jazz. It is this possibly perfectly pleasant music made by professionals that is never going to grab me. It's never going to get me to buy an album, or almost mm. never. Right. And that's fine. I mean, you know, variety, whatever, makes up the world. And it's not for me. It could be for other people, but it's no problem. You're also describing some other musics that actually adhere to kind of an orthodoxy. It's interesting to hear you say that, because I didn't consider that. That before oh you mean have a form in a yeah well i mean my god i mean if there's one thing we've learned is that this music doesn't take a lot of chances i don't think i mean there's definitely an orthodoxy to edm from what i can gather right and having 
having listened to the music, my issue with this music, if we're going to say issue, I mean, my main issue is just, I don't like it. It doesn't move me. Music is art. If art doesn't move you, there's, there's often nothing. You, you, you can't get it to move you. You can only learn to appreciate it or learn to respect it, I guess. Yep. And I respect it because why not? Fine. My issue more, and we were talking about this, I read some articles about it, primarily this, this article in the New Yorker from 2013 titled Nightclub Royale by a writer named Josh Eels. And uh, he basically just examines the new wave among um, Vegas casinos, how they are cashing in on the popularity of EDM and how in some cases they're making more money from booking huge, big, world-famous DJs and bringing in people and selling alcohol to the fans, make more money from that than they make from the casinos. And this article is fucking depressing because it, <laughs> it really gets at my problem with this music. The DJs, whatever, they're doing almost no work, it seems. They're all these, like, boring, milk-toast, white Swedish guys who somehow become famous for... But whatever, they're, they're, it's an art. It's a craft. They're creating something. It takes skill. Fine. But these fans who go to these concerts, you know, they're not even dancing. They're sitting there and, and drinking <laughs> and staring at... and they're, they're drinking alcohol and staring at a guy behind a, a, a Mac laptop and paying thousands of dollars for the privilege. And that is the fall of Rome, as far as I'm concerned. Another big asterisk here, I, I also read a little about EDM festivals. And those strike me as a lot different. And those strike me as something a lot more worthy of respect and even admiration. Because if it's a bunch of kids going to a festival and dancing, and half the time not doing drugs and not drinking, and dressing up in weird clothes and expressing themselves and being artistic, even though the music doesn't move me, I can have a lot of respect for that. And I can even celebrate that. Because, yeah, kids should be going out and dancing and having fun and expressing themselves and being weird. So that seems all right to me. I'm never going to go to one of these festivals, but more power to them. What say you, Mr. Scurry? Well, let me ask you one question. I know you to yes. be a rock and roll sort of expert, much like we were in, in the Zack Snyder discussion. You come up with a, a real cultural background. So with that being said, did you have a preconceived notion about what uh, EDM would wind up being? Because I know you weren't really familiar with it before this topic. The only aspect of my opinion that really changed this week is recognizing that the DJs do put more craft into it than I thought. I, for a long time, I didn't understand the distinction between DJs who like created tracks, mixed, you know, samples together into something entirely new and people who just played other people's music and somehow got celebrated for that, you know, because yeah. that isn't much of a skill as far as I'm concerned. I mean, right. it's a cool thing to do. I did that, you know, when I was a kid some, but like, you know, it's not your music. It's someone else's music. You know, you're a curator. You're not an artist. I give a lot of credit to the people who actually create these songs from bits and pieces of other sound effects or songs or tracks or instrumentals or whatever. I, I also developed more respect for the festivals. I guess I didn't realize how big business it was. Yeah, really? And yeah, so I, in that respect, I feel worse about it. And you know, one thing about the modern EDM, if we're talking the hits, you know, the songs I listened to this week, I listened to some Dead Mouse and David Guetta and Major Lazer and, and some Daft Punk. Some of these guys have been around for 15, 20 years. The songs are a lot hookier than I really think of as EDM being. You know, a lot of my head, I go back to like the 90s and these like spiritualized crystal method kind of acts. And these guys are definitely more mainstream in a way. I, even listening to a Daft yeah. Punk song from the 90s to a Daft Punk song from today, a song today needs to have more of a hook. It needs to really sound more like a pop hit. And that's mm -hmm. the way it goes. I still don't like the music, but whatever, it's pop music. I don't know what I'm getting at here, but basically, yeah, I'm never going to love this shit, <laughs> but it's fine. 
So I don't, again, I don't have a problem with the DJs. I don't have a problem with the people who listen to this crap on the radio. I have a problem with people who pay $100,000 to drink a bottle of vodka, stare at a, at a Swedish guy in a computer. That's my problem. But what do you think, Bill? Well, I actually love this shit, right? And I think if you scrape away really? a few, if you scrape, scrape away a few of the layers, look, I've been a huge fan of electronic music since I was a kid. I love the sound of a synthesizer. I love the sound of a sequencer. I love the sound of a drum machine. I have since I was aware that that was an electric instrument as opposed to an analog instrument going way back. There's something so lush about it. And I feel like my love of electric instruments made me track down a lot of prog. And then I found guys like Rick Wakeman and Keith Emerson, who were using the first Moog synthesizers, not traditionally EDM. But I feel like this pushes me further and further into this sort of house music, whatever house music was in the 80s. And then you get to house music. And then there's this sort of electric dance and gay disco and trip hop and tribal stuff. And for the purpose of this uh, podcast, I think that we passed the list back and forth between the two of us, and we wanted to get on the level with the same set of uh, uh, resources. We, we were talking about, the, let's get a list of songs and, and listen to the same ones. And so we looked at Dylan Francis, we looked at DJ Snake, we looked at Dead Mouse, we looked at Kevin Harris, David Guetta, Major Lazer, like Noah said, Daft Punk, Skrillex, FX Twin, guys like that. And I think you have a pretty weird mix of sounds. This is a lot of pop EDM. Some of the stuff like Calvin Harris to me sounds really basic. That is the most poppy hook-based things I think you're describing and that's why that guy's like the most famous guy on the planet yeah. Cal- a Calvin Harris song or a David Guetta song to me those guys obviously have tremendous acumen but I feel like it's come up with a hook come up with a sort of four on the floor beat and then put a Sia over the top put somebody who has a soaring vocal yeah. and, and it's kind of a canned formula the, the biggest thing that jumped out of me about those songs is how repetitive they are how they don't and maybe I'm biased but they feel more repetitive than a standard rock pop song to me yeah you know they just feel like you, you hit a groove and you just pound it into the floor for four minutes. Yeah. And I guess not... it's okay if you if you like to dance to it. It doesn't go anywhere from my point of view. Yeah, you know, they don't really have chord shifts. And and the thing is, it's not even verses. It's almost like it's 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 chorus, hook, chorus, hook, maybe even hook, 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 chorus, hook, hook, right. hook, chorus. And that is, that's just the vocabulary of the thing. That's the way some of these guys go. Now, I mean, but I'll say there's a big difference between a guy like Guetta and... Uh, someone like Major Lazer. Major Lazer is essentially Diplo. I don't know if you know who Diplo is. Diplo was um, the guy right. who put together Maya's uh, first couple albums. And he was somebody who had a really heterogeneous series of influences. And, and a lot of his early stuff in the early 2000s sounded really jagged. It was heavily influenced by Indonesian and Bangra influences and African. And, and even though he was this white guy from America, he was lifting from everybody and created this real weird sound. And Major Lazer turned out to me to be one of these guys who I really like the sound of. I listen to Run Up, listen to Believer, Lean On from him and DJ Snake. A lot of these guys, you know, they're not competitors, they're collaborators. They wind up putting a lot of work into each other's albums. Uh, and even Bubble Butt. Bubble Butt was great. Bubble Butt has yeah. this, has this oh. great Eric Wareheim video. I got a problem with that song. Well, you know, it, it, it's, ahead, a, it's a joke. It's goofy. And it's also, it's like a club banger, right? Who's I, on that one? Bruno Mars yeah. is on that one. Two Chains, Tyga, Mystic. That is some of the most accessible yeah. sort of like dancey house music with the still the pop hit vibe to it. My real love is for like Def Punk. I didn't love at first, but I feel like I've really grown an appreciation for them. They did the Tron soundtrack, which went a long way, but their first album... That I, of course. How, how could it not? How, how could, could it, it not? not? Their first album that I paid attention yeah. to was Homework, and Homework was great. Homework had a lot of really great songs on it. But my favorite guy of all time, and we weren't really going to get to this, but there's this guy in England. He's a Welsh... No, not a Welshman. He's a Cornishman named Luke Vibert, and he 
has spun under an, a billion different names, and he's so prolific. And his stuff is so incredible. It's like Acid House, which is a very different form. I mean, I, I don't know if the casual listener would notice a difference between any of these things, but I really started to love his work about seven or eight years ago. Luke Vibert got me into Aphex Twin, who's a little more industrial, and, and going back to the classic Come to Daddy and and stuff from, I think it was the late 90s that put him on the map. There's such a, a variety in some of this stuff. And I think that when you talk about EDM, the shit that rankles you is the stuff that does bother me. There's this culture of who listens to it, right? You figure that some of these guys right. are Belgian a-holes, you know, with tattoos and an Interpol date re- record going back to 2002. And those are your <laughs> fucking DJs. And everybody at the club are these zonked out zombies on ketamine just looking at the DJ booth as these lasers blast. Yeah. The crowd and that's, that's yeah. tiresome yeah yeah, that, yeah that's that's the pre, uh, preconceived notion i had about it it's the who was listening yeah. to it more than what the sound was like but i don't dance i don't dance i listen to it because i like to zone out i don't do drugs either i just like the sound yeah but do you want to go to a concert would you go to a concert of this i wouldn't go anywhere near it i wouldn't go anywhere i wouldn't go right if, exactly i wouldn't go anywhere you in clark county in nevada background while you're working on something, yes. right? Yeah, and exactly. that's again, that's the only times I like listening to classical or jazz in the background. It is background mm-hmm. music. It it might be good background music, but as far as I'm concerned, it's background music. And for me, the music experience is about passion. Is about this is why I karaoke. I want to pretend I'm a rock star. I want a song to take me a place. And whatever, we're going to agree to disagree here. It's like I said, it's art. It either speaks to your soul or it doesn't. And I think the one thing mm-hmm. we agree on here is the cultural use or the cultural role of this music. Putting aside the artistry, the creativity of the people who make it, it's the cultural role of this music. That's the pattern of all, not all, but many, many artistic movements that become co-opted and adapted by the mainstream. It certainly happened with hip-hop. You know, hip-hop went from this grimy underground street thing to big money and it seduced the performers, many of whom started in the underground grimy world. You know, it seduced them with with cars and money and all that. Happened to rock and roll in general. Um, I mean, it's happened to any of a number of artistic movements. It is so far away from that now. The idea of, of standing in a Las Vegas club and paying thousands of dollars for booze and just zonking out and listening to an antiseptic piece of music, even if the music's creative, even if the music draws from some of those house and soul influences which listening to these hits you hear that this is what bothers me more is the cultural co-opting of this thing but whatever I mean this is time immemorial this happens again and again and again it has taken something weird and wacky and strange and made it into the most the most bro-y you know (laughs) you know you mentioned Major Lazer and I listened to that song Turn Down For What and I couldn't stand that song because it sounds to me like I just the the adjective I kept using was bro-y this sounds like something that's playing in a frat house on a Saturday night, and just to be sure, that's not Major Lazer. That's DJ Snake and Lil John. Just to make, just to make, be obvious about that. What? What the hell okay, do I know? Okay. All right. Well, let me take you to Major Lazer now and Bubble Butt. And you want to know my problem with Bubble yeah. Butt? Uh, is Bubble Butt reminds me of every time I listen to a modern hip hop hit. Not every time, but often. And I really want to say, really, we're still doing this. It's still about sex and throwing money around in the club. And the conspicuous consumption. Personally, I think Bubble Butt's being a little ironic. It, it's so obvious and over the top. Oh, it's okay. Like the, it's I, like, I think you're giving people way too much credit there. Michael. I'm not. Well, I think I'm. Oh, if, okay. I think Major. I'm think not not the audience so much, but maybe the creators. I'm going to give Major Laser and and the guys Bruno and Two Chains. Those guys. I I feel like they're making the Suicide Squad of 
songs. It's something so garish <laughs> and outrageous and technicolor and, and, and so preposterous that you, well, I was going to say you have no choice but to enjoy it, but obviously you had a choice and you opted not to. the appeal of this thing why are people so into it i can go negative and say because we're in the fall of rome and we just want to escape and we just we just <laughs> you know it's like that scene in um in snowpiercer where they go through the car in the train that is the dance club and everyone is just mm-hmm. totally high on some kind of drug and you know they're the only survivors and it's pure hedonism because that's all we have left in the world fuck this world i'm gonna get high on drugs i'm gonna get drunk and I'm going to listen to this music that narcotizes me. I mean, look, music has always been an escape. And there's nothing wrong with that. Again, the good brand are these wacky kids having a good time at the dance festival. Even the guys who get paid $100,000 per gig at Hakkasan or whatever the hell the place is in Vegas. Why are they popular? Well, because it's a canny understanding of what people like. The remix idea is very popular because we're in this world that's so much about constituting and reconstituting from different cultural influences. So they take the Michael Jackson sound and they take the electronic sound and they blend it together into some coherent whole. So the idea of the polyglot work of art, it's been a point that our culture has been moving towards the last 20 years as our minds and brains and, and beings become inundated with various media from every place 24 hours a day. That's why it's popular. I don't know. So it's a combination of they have their pulse on the zeitgeist and people's standards have lowered. Which is might be true. <laughs> which might be true for everything that's popular. That's a common thread of this podcast. I feel like every single episode, yes, it is. in yes, some it ways, is. has been about yeah. either they win and we lose, yeah, no matter exactly. what happens. Exactly. <laughs> The, the New Yorker article you cited, and you also sent me one that was a, a gawker distillation of that article, points at the lowest hanging fruit of this is a racially monoglot room full of zonked out bros who are all on some sort of uh, yeah. ketamine or, or at the worst, they're on Bud Light, right? And they're just like looking forward and they're, they, they're all <laughs> sweaty and wearing uh, biased striped shirts that are untucked or, or some bullshit. Very key here. They all make a lot of money if they don't know what to do with. That could be true. And spending 10 grand on a bottle of tequila or whatever the hell at a club Goose, seems to yeah. be a way of, of expressing their power. I'm a big guy. I have a big penis because I can spend $10,000 on a bottle of alcohol. I feel like the sound of EDM is one phenomenon that's popular because it fits so well into the pop idiom of soaring hooks and yeah. uh, a, a female vocalist, a Danish you know, 23-year-old vocalist who has an umlaut in her name, singing some generic uh, chorus over some really blast beat type thing. And it's perfect because you know there's no lyrics anymore. It's just essentially a chorus. And so that's popular because it's so fit for radio play and Spotify play. And that's great. The culture of EDM is, I think, what you say. It looks sexy. It looks like the Lotus Eater uh, effect where people are in a room full of other sexy people. And by conference, you wind up being sexy because you're in that room. This is like club insanity and you need to be a part of this, bro. And that's like two facets of the thing that make it really, uh, I guess, appealing to young people. And the ironic part is, is that a lot of these DJs who are making the music are in their 40s. There's some of them who are definitely, there's some of them are kids. But I know Tiesto, 
I think is in his forties now, and he's not, he's not a young man anymore. I think Diplo. Yeah, I've been hearing about some of these guys since the nineties. Totally. Yeah, I, I think that Daft Punk are in their mid forties. Those guys have been around for a while, and obviously they have a lot of um, expertise. They're musicians, and they just ply their musicianship through you know synthesized instruments and and you know non analog things and sequencers. I feel like I get why it's popular. It is totally a hallmark of youth culture because this is something much like some forms of anime. You look at it and it instantly it cleaves a generational line. Would you like this if you were a kid? If you were a kid now, you, you like this music now. Would you feel similarly if all of what's happening now is happening when you were 16? Yeah, I think so. The thing I don't like is earnest white guy music with banjos. Like, I was never into Wilco. <laughs> I was never into the replacements. I was never into the magnetic fields. I was never into the shins. And my thing is, is that I have always been into this kind of music more than anything else. Not that it, not that there isn't a pure barrier between them, but I feel like I was into whatever the version of this that made it out to Long Island suburbs in 1990. If I was listening on an FM radio in my bedroom, I was listening to whatever. They were playing Shannon's Let the Music Play. That was a real exciting moment to me and I felt like oh there, there's something really hyperkinetic about this this sounds exciting I think that's why I still like it today in my 40s and yeah if I had this music put up to me now the form of electronic music the so-called EDM idiom I think I would like it would you go to a concert I don't go to if any were, concerts, period. So, no, I, I... When you were 16, did you go to concerts? No, man, no one... No, there's no way I could get out to Madison Square Garden All right. Nassau All Coliseum. right, well, forget Madison, forget Madison Square Garden and Nassau Coliseum. Here, here's, a, here's a hypothetical, Bill. You're in college. You're at Long Island University. And one Friday, a friend of yours, more to the point, a friend of yours and a girl you have the hots for, say, hey, mm-hmm. there's this electronic music festival. It's a 45-minute ride away. Tickets are 20 bucks. Do you want to come? We got a car, people. We got a room in the car. Do you want to come? Do you go? No. Why not? I don't go because I've never been a fan of live music. But but you realize the festival is not live music is only one of the experiences of the festival. It's about being there. It's about the the vibe. It's about the collective experience. Even when the background is the type of music you enjoy. I think I've only been to about 19 concerts in my life. And it's really a strategic methodology because I honestly feel like the music that you give me in a live environment is it can never sound as good as the hyper overproduced version I got on an album or an MP3. And so I figure, why do I need to hear this live when I can hear the ultimate version of this at home on a listening device and have my own private relationship with the music? Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I've always felt that way. So be it. So what about me? You think I would have liked this when I was a kid? Uh, No, I'm going to guess. No. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, because and you know what? It's very easy to answer because, because for all intents and purposes, certainly from my point of view, where I don't draw too many distinctions among the different subgenres as much as you do, it did exist back then. I hear differences between this and CNC Music Factory or whatever, but I don't hear meaningful differences from my pers- from as far as my personal tastes are concerned. And I had no interest in that back then. Now, I will tell you a difference with age is back then, I was a bit more of a music snob where I would scorn the musicians I don't like. Oh, Bon Jovi is such crap and new kids on the block should be killed. You know, all that. And I've mellowed out and realized like, whatever, who cares? Like, why are you getting upset about this stuff? So Mm -hmm. I might have mocked CNC Music Factory at the time or rolled my eyes that it was the number one hit. Now I don't care. No, I I never would have liked this crap. However, 
if I were in college and a hot girl invited me to go to a festival, <laughs> I I would have gone. And I'll tell you something else. If I if it were easy and someone had an extra ticket, I might actually go to one of these festivals. I might just for the. I mean, I'd feel old, so I'd be more likely in my twenties than now. But I might go because I like dancing, and it might be cool to dance a little and walk around and look at pretty girls and and have a drink in the sun and see people wear crazy costumes. I mean, I'd probably get bored after an hour and a half, but it'll be a cool life experience, you know. That's an interesting intersection because I think that's the only way you could sell me on this. I feel like I would go for sociology the same way I've been to Vegas right. a bunch of times, not because I have any interest in drinking to excess or strippers or clubs or gambling. It's more the idea that I feel like a Louis Leakey when I go to Vegas. <laughs> and I could definitely understand seeing one of these things as like, oh, this is the chance to see a certain you know subspecies of person in their native habitat. You set up a camera at night that has the infrared vision and you catch their little reflective eye disc because they look at you from across the room and you sort of watch like a little uh, Heisenberg principle trying to uh, make them not feel like they're observed. I would definitely see something like that. And maybe that's a little bit of what you're intimating as well, even though you might be compelled to dance. I would be compelled to just sort of breathe the air for a couple of hours and then walk away from it. Much like going to a Star Trek convention, not because I love Star Trek, but just because you want to sort of get in touch with who's here and what are they doing? And why did you applique ridges on your forehead? I want to know the person who's this... (laughs) (laughs) swept up into a strange movement. That kind of thing is pretty cool. I hate to say it, but maybe now not so much, but I bet if I were 28 years old and still had, you know, mostly the same music tastes I have now, I would have had a good time at one of these. I mean, it's a bad comparison, but I'm thinking about when I went to the Warp Tour when I was 22, but the Warp Tour was the kind of, you know, it's all (laughs) happened. I saw... I saw half of those bands that I love. So did I you see? Wait, terrible. did you see? Did you see Hoopastank? <laughs> no, not at the Warp. Warp Tour was awesome. See, I have no idea. You the fact that you think Husker Du and Pavement are two of a kind. That's white guy music. Shows that you, nah, but there's so many. But that's like saying Otis Redding and Ray Schrimmer are the same because they're both black guys. The War Tour had some bad acts. I will give you that. But I saw some fuck. I saw Kid Rock at the War Tour. All right, fine. Before he was big. <laughs> but I saw, I saw Bad Religion. I saw the special. I went to the, it only happened once, the Little Stevens Underground Garage Festival at Randall's Island. Same oh, place wow. where I saw the Warp Tour. Yeah, My sure. God, I saw Iggy Pop. I saw the New York Dolls. I saw Big Star. Mm-hmm. I saw Pete Best of the Beatles. I mean, my God. Those festivals are great because when they're done right, there really is something for everyone. Mm -hmm. And I like dancing. And I can imagine a scenario where I enjoy dancing to some of this music. I don't drink alcohol, but you know what? Give me a powerful enough of a joint and I might really have a good time. It's funny Um, because you're buttressing the uh, argument to why it's popular and almost like substantiating your own reasons why. It's fascinating. I'm I'm only only human, my friend. You are only human. Until, of course, the the, the strict genetic enhancement comes and turns you into a better thing. I say the music is not a sign of the apocalypse, but I say if the New Yorker article is accurate, that trend is a sign of the apocalypse. They quote Will I Am and the Black Eyed Peas, who are bad enough to begin with. You know, it's not, it, <laughs> it shouldn't, what's, what's the quote? It's a great quote. He says it's something like he's, it, a, he's a strange cultural commentator. Yeah, by the way, they so shouldn't yeah. even what kind call of credibility does he have. They shouldn't even call it dance music. Will I am told me they should call it look at the DJ and get drunk music. That is a sign of the apocalypse. Yeah. The fact that they say some of the highest level guests will spend 
$500,000 on alcohol in one night. That's the sign of the apocalypse. That's the fall of Rome, yeah, my friend. That shit has never happened with hip-hop. It never happened with rock and roll. I don't even think Rick James ever spent half a million dollars on cocaine in one night. I do think it happened in hip-hop. I think the phenomenon of the club also... Um, really? Oh, yeah. You can spend half a million easily at night uh, on bottles of Goose and, and Stoli or whatever. That, that's, this Jesus. Is, this is the the Morlock versus the Eloy, right? The fact is if you're in the socioeconomic status where you could spend this much money frivolously on something disposable, in fact, you might as well just take a handful of $100 bills and just let it go into the wind because that's all you get. But you just went through a half a million dollars <laughs> profligately. Nothing would really indicate to me a growing sense of the Trumpian destruction of this country than the fact that people are so willing to part with their money so frivolously. So I'll agree. The culture, the music as a byway into the culture is a sign of the apocalypse. I would also say the fact that the music has become such a scientific Pythagorean theorem. Yes. Add add this plus that plus that. First of all, there's a lot of skill because obviously the Swedish vocalists they have have incredible pipes and the guys who are building the beats are incredibly smart and canny and they're they're deviously clever but the music they produce is very simple and it, it, it is the uh, sonic equivalent of Fast and Furious or 12. It's something that anyone can yeah. listen to. You don't need any con- you don't, there's no continuity. It doesn't tell a story. It, there's no, there's definitely no storytelling and for me that's always yeah. a, a high barrier to entry because I need storytelling in, in any form of anything I listen to. That's why Harry Chapin is your favorite singer of all Harry time. Chapin, a man I can't, I want a Fast <laughs> and Furious of Harry Chapin and uh, Leonard Cohen. I, I want the two of them together <laughs> Oh, Leonard Cohen's awesome. Come on. I'm sure he is. Um, Leonard Cohen is another guy. Uh, it's off topic. I can't get it. Yeah, I, I can't get into him. But yeah, I mean, you bring up a point that maybe we should have brought up earlier is the the soullessness of this industry. Now, that is certainly not EDM. There have been a thousand think pieces about how pop music in general has moved ever more toward that direction and how media has moved yeah. more that toward that direction. Our culture makes art more and more commodified. And EDM is... I would say a signal example of that in 2017. So yeah, I think yeah, it's cl- good point. You mentioned the name of the Orange Goblin, and I think that's part of it as well. Um, is just you know our, our culture has just become debased in so many ways. But I'm not going to blame the DJs. I'm not going to na- blame most of the fans. This is the way we've been moving. How much of our hatred for this, whatever aspect of this we do hate, how much of that is jealousy? I would say a fair amount of jealousy. I'll put it at the 50-50. I feel like, Mm -hmm. again, I don't hate it, but the parts of it that I do hate, let's quantify it. So the parts of it that I really don't like about this are based on the fact that it winds up being another fucking cool person room. And why is it that we keep coming back to the concept of a small chamber with a fucking gatekeeper outside (laughs) who doesn't get in and who stays outside, right? And it's like, I have never tried to finesse my way past a velvet rope or some sort of bouncer or a guy with a clipboard ever. And yet there's the idea that I I feel like I know I'm on the outside of that. If, If I don't bother trying, but I know if I did try, I wouldn't get in because there's nothing exceptional about me. Anytime you present that room and it's like, well, I either want to obliterate that room by setting a fire like the White Snake Providence concert and watching everybody burn, or or I want to get <laughs> that in that was room. Great white. That was oh great white. A, yes. That was great white, and, and B that was in very poor taste, my friend. But go ahead. Maybe so. But but I I either want to destroy the room or I want to become a part of it. And so 
yeah, you know, part of it is that, yeah. yeah. Those grapes are very sour, my friend. They're, they're among the sourest. And you know what? If you distill those sour grapes, yeah. you get a bottle of cognac, which will cost you $10,000. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We, we barely discuss drugs, but that's a whole other story. That's true. We don't, um, we don't have, you know, I don't have any the, kind of grounding on it. I would have no idea. The, the, the stereotype that everyone there is high on Molly or something, you know, who knows? Uh, well, I think I'm going to agree with you that it's, for me, it's 50% jealousy. Um, you know, my knee-jerk reaction to this music is before this week, oh, they barely do any work, DJs do nothing. That is mostly jealousy because I am involved in a creative art that I've said many times, you know, I'm, I create trivia games and produce them. And I put a lot of effort into my work and I often feel underappreciated because I'm only human. So I always, I have a very Calvinist attitude that hard work, you know, build a better mousetrap, the world will be a path to your door. And and the, I often say the bitterest lesson of adulthood is how that is not true. That hard work does not equal better results. So the jealousy for me is like, these guys do nothing and everyone loves them. Fine, whatever. So yes, so, so there's some jealousy involved that this, this music that I think is low effort does so well. That being said, you know, thinking a little more rationally, especially in this past week, it's not as low, e you know, these guys who just play other people's music and are worship, fine, they're low effort. We're not talking about them. We're talking about the mix masters or the, the those guys. Real real musicians, absolutely. They're, they're musicians. They're artists. I might not like it. I might think it's sleazy sometimes, but they're artists. There's jealousy of someone who can afford to spend $10,000 on a bottle of alcohol. Not that I would ever in 8 billion years spend that money, but... You know, I'd love to think nothing of going out for a $20 hamburger. That would be a nice way to live, <laughs> I think. That's another argument as to why, why it's popular. People want to be in a place. If, like, some for some reason, the idea of spending half a million dollars on liquor is this enticing prospect that must mean you had fun. That's a, that's a popular thing. That's aspirational, man. But that, it goes back to the caveman. That means you have a big dick. And, and yeah, especially, right. especially alcohol that in our debased culture has always had this air of, you know, ooh, it's dangerous and I'm living it up and I'm having fun. He must feel like he is the biggest alpha male in the world. I'm a purple belt in Taekwondo. I could probably beat the shit out of him, but who knows? <laughs> I think that brings us to the end of yet another yes. episode of the I Don't Get It podcast. And here's our, here's our small type. If you'd like to find past episodes yes. on iTunes and SoundCloud, find them on iTunes and SoundCloud. You can tweet us at <laughs> you can tweet us at, at Noah and Bill Show. You can write to us at Noah and Bill Don't Get It at gmail.com and you can visit the mother page at I Don't Get It Podcast.com. Me, Bill Scurry, could be found at, at William Scurry, and I'm on YouTube at AM Caesar. And my friend Noah Tarno will tell you all about himself right now. I am at bigquizthing.com. I am producer of the Big Quiz Thing. The Trivia Game Show Spectacular, corporate and private, and occasionally public quiz events nationwide. And you can also find me at noatarno.com, which these days is given over to my 2017 karaoke marathon. Singing as many karaoke songs in 17 as possible to raise money for the American Civil Liberties Union. That's a good cause. How about that? I've given money to yeah, everyone well, should give. That's ACLU. Let's do this. These days. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. I... Bill gave me money, and in return, I, I karaoke'd a song at his request. I did journeys separate ways. It did not end successfully. And that's the end of it, my friends. As always, what, right. have, we, what right. have we learned this week? We've learned that I don't get it. We've learned that I don't get it. And once again, they win. <laughs> we lose. A production of American Caesar Enterprises 2017.